It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. You're on KSL News Radio. I'm Mary Richards, co-hosting with Jason Lee. We've got a glass barrier in between us. <laughs> we <laughs> are doing quite the doing, social distancing right we now. We are. We try to be safe. We're doing the hand signals. Everything I think is working pretty well. So glad to be with you this Friday afternoon because there is a lot to talk about and a lot. Uh, I felt like as we were prepping for the show, uh, we had so much to catch up on already. Indeed. And just chat and then and just so much to talk about going on in the world. I am really um, glad for this opportunity right now, um, however, to get the insights from an expert, really, let's be honest, because I can talk about the news all day, but I I love getting uh, the perspective and the expertise uh, from someone who knows what they're talking about. And why don't, Jason, why don't you introduce who we have today? He is Professor <clears throat> Mark Dennison, Dennis Stun. He is a professor of political science at Weber State University, and he is a Beside being a constitutional scholar, he's going to help us understand qualified immunity, particularly as it relates to some of the things we're going to talk about with uh, law enforcement and apprehension of suspects. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Denniston. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Excellent. So, you know, uh, we talked a little bit earlier in the show about uh, these Salt Lake cities suspending the uh, canine apprehension program. And I wanted to talk to you a little, little bit about, besides what's going on here in locally, We've had circumstances uh, here in Salt Lake and as well around the country, uh, most recently with the Breonna Taylor case in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, when they've charged officers with behavior in when they were involved in a case, and, in, and, and sometimes it's with the apprehension, other times it's in an investigation, or in this case, uh, trying to, I guess, look after uh, a house they thought was involved in criminal activity. And unfortunately, Ms. Taylor, who was sleeping at the time, was killed. And the, at least the Kentucky Attorney General, who was handling that case, declined to uh, prosecute the officers, uh, two of the officers. One of them, though, may face some charges. I was wondering if you could explain what qualified immunity is and why it makes it so difficult sometimes for, uh, or challenging, I should say difficult, challenging for uh, the uh, attorney generals or uh, district attorneys to file charges against police officers while they're doing their uh, their duties? Well, qualified immunity, I think, is actually more of a concept for civil lawsuits. If you're going to bring a civil lawsuit uh, by the family uh, against uh, one of the officers for violating constitutional rights, uh, officers are protected by qualified immunity. Uh, they also have protections in the criminal law. So yesterday was about uh, criminal charges, uh, and the Attorney General of Kentucky declining to um, bring charges. The grand jury did not uh, return an indictment. Uh, so they're related concepts, um, but qualified immunity is more for the civil lawsuits. So that's when uh, they can, you can't sue the officer, but you might be able to sue the agency. Well, and even uh, qualified immunity really sets up a concept that what the officers are doing has to be clearly prohibited in the case law. So you have to have a case that's very close on the facts. Otherwise, officers are going to have the discretion uh, to engage in conduct and to use their discretion to enforce the law. Uh, and so unless um, the plaintiff can point to a very clear um, 
constitutional precedent, it's going to be difficult um, to maintain that lawsuit. The lawsuit's going to be dismissed, uh, summary judgment, uh, unless there's clear prohibitions laid out. So you often have to find a a case that's almost factually similar or identical in mm-hmm. order to be successful. One more thing. As it relates to kind of situations involving law enforcement, and we, we talked about uh, the apprehension uh, situation here with the canine, there seems to be uh, an erosion of trust in, in some communities around this country between the uh, citizens and uh, law enforcement. Is there any way to kind of mitigate this, uh, or do you have some thoughts on what these circumstances are and, and what might be done to help maybe improve them? Well, certainly, I, I think there's issues all over the country. We've been seeing protests um, basically from coast to coast in a whole variety of different situations. Brianna Taylor, um, obviously the protests in Portland. I mean, um, in Washington, D.C., the use of police to uh, clear President Trump's way to... Uh, Go to the church, that's right. yeah. um, So... Uh, Reestablishing trust. I mean, that's a difficult. I think the community has to be confident that officers are looking out for their best interests um, and that they'll be held accountable and that the the law will be applied. And uh, I'm not sure that that's being done now. Um, maybe with some of these um, uh, investigations, and we'll see what happens in Minnesota, um, where there are criminal charges. Um, in the situation where officers were kneeling uh, on the neck mm-hmm. of an African-American uh, male, right? I mean, the community has to feel that law, the courts, law enforcement are looking out for their best interests. And uh, sadly, there are too many examples where that apparently is not the case. Well, and uh, and for those just joining us, this is Professor Mark Denniston, Weber State University. Uh, we talk about rebuilding trust. How much does actually um, getting all the facts out help people for those who for months have been thinking one thing about the Breonna Taylor case? And then when the grand jury information comes out, they realize, oh, officers were shot at and returning fire. They wouldn't have necessarily known that. We didn't know that um, for just kind of how the system works with investigations and grand juries. But now that those facts are out, how does that help the public now? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the public knowing what... What the details are is critical, as you point out. The knowing that officers were being fired upon, that shots were fired by um, persons inside Breonna Taylor's uh, apartment is critical, that they, officers were under fire at the time that they shot, is critical information. That is one of the downsides of using a grand jury to investigate officer conduct, because grand jury proceedings are typically sealed. So that information is typically not released to the public on the theory that um, if there's not enough probable cause to proceed to trial, then someone's reputation shouldn't be drawn through the mud, um, and those that testimony should be sealed. Now, I know the Kentucky governor uh, has discussed releasing that grand jury information. Uh, that was certainly the case several years ago in Ferguson, where the grand jury uh, refused to indict um, officers there, uh, and those grand jury transcripts were released. But the default is secrecy for grand jury proceedings. So we don't know yet uh, what kinds of testimony were presented in the grand jury uh, and what information those citizens considered when they were making a decision on whether to indict officers in the Breonna Taylor shooting. So, as Mary described, you know, it seems to me that transparency would be the better part of, of under, getting people to understand what's happening. But as you say, the reason there is also a reason why grand juries are, are, are uh, you know, kept private. 
how do you balance those those two things so that again you you can reestablish the trust and make the connection that uh, the public is being treated fairly and so are the officers and that's a difficult one i think that's one area for reform to make uh, officer involved shootings have a transparent process whether that's conducted by the state attorney general uh, but to have a more transparent process on the theory that officers are public servants. They are public officials, and the balance of interests might be different for officers than for um, an average citizen because of the, the public trust that they hold. Um, or, uh, barring something like that, you know, a, a more dramatic reform, opening up the grand jury proceedings, making the transcripts available um, so that the prosecutor's role can be revealed. Because prosecutors can easily go into a grand jury and deep-six the indictment by effectively acting as defense attorneys for the officers. Is that – and that would be a conflict? Well, it's, it's, it's a potential conflict of interest. Um, prosecutors work closely with law enforcement for obvious reasons in investigations, and that trust between officers and prosecutors is key. But then when it comes time for prosecutors to investigate – law enforcement conduct, um, there's certainly concerns that building the trust in the community that prosecutors are going to cover or that prosecutors uh, don't want to be bringing cases that they might lose uh, against officers' criminal charges. So I think transparency would be key here, uh, bringing those transcripts uh, or using every avenue in state law to unseal those records and to make those transcripts public whenever possible. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break here in just a second and come back and speak more with Professor Denniston uh, about some other topics, of course, to pick his brain on, including uh, what's happening with the Supreme Court. So sit tight. Uh, we'll come right back to, to speak with Professor Denniston. But we've got to start with some breaking news right before we get to commercial. Uh, we've got the latest numbers for today, the latest coronavirus case count from the Department of Health. And they report an increase of 1,411 cases from yesterday. A record-breaking 1,400, basically, new cases from yesterday. Uh, And there were 10,000 more people tested as well. So it's always important to mention that. So the rolling seven-day average for positive tests is 960 per day. It says the rolling seven-day average for percent of positive laboratory tests is 14%. Hospitalizations. There are uh, 184 people currently hospitalized. And then for the deaths, um, because... Those are also more to report. Four more than yesterday, and all four were uh, older than 65, it looks like. Uh, two, Three between the ages of 65 and 84, and one over the age of 85. So again, 1,400 new cases from yesterday, and we'll be covering this throughout the day here on KSL News Radio. Right now, this is Live Mike, Mary Richards, Jason Lee filling in, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. I am Jason Lee. You're listening to KSL News Radio and Live Mike. I am joined today by my... Very long-time news colleague, Mary. We've been, we've been on the air for a long time together. We have. Uh, Mary we'll Richards. Back. And uh, thank you for joining us. I want to bring this up. We invite you to weigh in on the conversation through the Utah Community Credit Union text line. Text your comments to 57500. Again, text them to 57500 if you want to join the conversation. We're speaking right now <clears throat> to Weber State University political science professor Mark Denniston. Uh, he is a, a constitutional scholar who actually follows constitutional uh, history and ethics, as well as judicial politics. And we want to kind of jump to uh, the judicial part of that and ask you, Professor, regarding the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I wanted to get your uh, your thoughts on 
you know, what is what are the impl- political implications of this vacancy? And uh, talk a little bit about her legacy on the court and what it means to replace her. Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a giant, an absolute giant in the law. It's been frequently stated uh, in these last uh, week uh, that she would have been a, a lawyer of note um, without ever being named to the court. She was a giant before the court, and her stature has only grown uh, both in popular culture, notorious RBG, um, but also the decisions, um, often dissents, that she wrote, um, being a tireless advocate for women uh, and equality uh, under the law, um, but also in some political cases, um, Bush v. Gore, as we look forward to a uh, hotly contested election this time. I mean, she's um, been a giant uh, on the Supreme Court, and I think the respect that she's being paid this week, first woman, first Jewish American to lie in state in the Capitol this morning, uh, those moving images, absolutely uh, uh, a huge moment in American history. Yeah, I was talking about that earlier. In fact, I, I really appreciated that uh, time to reflect, to honor um, those kinds of things because because I feel like it's already kind of started to change, but especially probably probably tomorrow if we get this announcement from President Trump on who he's uh, nominating, are we going to jump right back into the these partisan, oh, that's a terrible pick, or that's a wonderful pick, or I hate you and you hate me, you know, those kinds of pointing fingers. Oh, I think that's already started. Uh, it's only been a week. It was only last Friday that I think uh, America was shocked by the news. And uh, even in that week, the, the posturing, the, the, even the hypocrisy, <laughs> the, the changing political realm as uh, senators backtrack from statements mm-hmm. only a couple years ago. So, you, and I'm sure the first thing I'm thinking of is Lindsey Graham, who said you could use my words against me, which he never cared about anyway because he was disingenuous when he said it. And Mitch McConnell, who may be the uh, smartest politician in Washington these days, uh, who has kind of set himself up for being able to move forward despite the fact that he didn't do the same thing under the previous president. Uh, however, polit- politically speaking, he's he's doing the job that he's paid to do, and that is to uh, advocate for his party. And hopefully get what they want, uh, even if there may be, again, some of that, like you said, some of the hypocrisy that uh, stems from what happened with uh, President Obama and his uh, proposed nomination of Merrick Garland. That's right. I mean, as Mitt Romney points out, historically, it's not unusual to appoint justices in an election year. Over the course of American history, that's actually happened numerous times, somewhere in the realm of a dozen times. I think what's different this time is the you know, recent history, the refusing to act on President Obama's nomination, and the rhetoric that went with it, that the American people should be called upon to weigh in and that it should be decided at the election, and then to switch gears and say, no, this time we have the votes, we control the Senate, uh, and therefore the Senate should proceed, is in such close proximity uh, reveals, uh, as you say, the, the, the idea that we're going to represent our interests, uh, our voters, and if we're hypocritical about it, that's but, so be it. But they can, though. I mean, I'm not sure if I see it as hypocrisy, because uh, each party said something last time, and now each party's saying a flipped thing this time. Uh, Senator Mike They Lewis, can all be hypocrites, Mary. <laughs> that's true. Uh, and I've, it's been interesting to hear people point out, well, no, they're, they're sticking with precedent and their principles, and other people pointing out, no, it's hypocritical. Uh, Senator Mike Lee tweeting 
Elections have consequences. We are, in fact, a political branch of government, and we chose not to confirm Merrick Garland. And he was saying uh, another tweet he said uh, the day before yesterday. He said, look, it's simple. If the president puts forward a nominee and we like them, we'll confirm them. If we don't, we won't. I thought, well, that's pretty straightforward. But it's, it is and it's not. So, and, and the idea behind that is uh, he is being hypocritical whether he wants to admit to it or not. But it doesn't matter because he's his uh, party won. And so that's uh, to the uh, victor goes the spoils, right? And in this way, they're doing the same thing. And, it, and I don't think the Democrats would have been any better, by the way. I mean, if it was the other way around, they'd still be doing this. That's true. So I'm not putting one over the other, but I, I will point out hypocrisy when it is. And, <laughs> and, and I, will, I will disagree with you a little bit, Mary. I, if they literally said, uh, uh, what is the guy's name? Um, Lindsey Graham said, if I change my mind and if, I, if you could use my words against me, well, we're using my, your words against you now. <laughs> we and, did it. And that is true. Uh, Professor Denniston, uh, by the way, we are talking with Professor Mark Denniston from Weber State University. Uh, tell us kind of what you expect in these coming weeks. Well, I think the million-dollar question is whether Republicans are able to conclude the confirmation hearings before Election Day. Uh, certainly that would be, of recent years, historically um, quick. The average confirmation from day of appointment or day of nomination until day of confirmation has been running about 70 days. So get this done before Election Day would be um, on the very short side. So I don't know whether Republicans have the time. Now, constitutionally, they could have a confirmation vote tomorrow. And in 100 years ago, that would have been the norm. A few days from nomination, the Senate votes. So there's certainly no constitutional constraint for moving quickly. It's more these um, political norms uh, and the recent past. Do you have the televised hearings? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you collect all the information? Now, if President Trump nominates Judge uh, Amy Coney Barrett, as is widely expected, uh, she was recently nominated just a couple years ago um, and went through the confirmation process, they may be able to move relatively quickly, but still. 37, 38 days uh, until Election Day is um, a very quick confirmation process in the last couple decades. Can I ask you something real quick? Is, can he, worst case scenario, could he do? Uh, could the president and the Senate do a, a recess nomination? Well, I, I don't think they need to. The, 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 the issue will be whether the nomination vote slides into the lame duck session. And do we know the results of the election before mm-hmm. the Senate votes on the votes on the seat. Mm. Okay. And let me add one last question for you. How will uh, this new justice, how will that change the, di- the dynamics of the Supreme Court? Well, it'll be huge. If, if President Trump is successful in naming a conservative, whether it's Judge Barrett or other, uh, that person will likely shift the median vote on the court from Chief Justice Roberts, who has been, you know, at least somewhat um, willing to side with Democrats, to a much more solid conservative vote like Justice Gorsuch. Yeah. Interesting. So at this point, we could look at this as being something that would uh, affect the court for decades. Oh, yes. Uh, This justice will likely serve for 30 or 40 years. I I saw a quick headline this morning that said Democrats want to be able to limit those terms to 18, but that's not going to pass. That would take a constitutional amendment. I mean, that's just not going to happen, is it? I don't think it's going to happen. I I agree. It it probably requires a constitutional amendment. There's some clever theories out there that it doesn't. But I think it, it requires a constitutional amendment. Yeah. So, and like you said, she if it is uh, Justice, if it would be Justice Barrett, she could serve for for decades. Yeah. Well, up until now, think about it. The uh, the Democrats had had a long time. It's been a more liberal court. This is kind of uh, the shift now, potentially. Yeah, that's true. Oh, and I did want to point this out. I just saw this. Um, 
A new survey from Marquette University Law School says Americans are more united than divided on the Supreme Court. More than 60 percent said they approve of the job the Supreme Court is doing. Uh, so, you know, maybe uh, maybe there's some hope out there that depending on the, the new nomination, but Americans will still see some positives and, and not be as divided as it might appear when you watch the headline news. <laughs> Your thoughts, Professor? Well, yes. Uh, the court has, over the last few years, delivered wins for both sides. And so I think that uh, shows them to be a, a relatively even-handed. But a 6-3 to three conservative majority would be much more empowered than a narrow 5-4 majority has been the case the last couple of years. Yeah. Perfect analysis. We're so grateful for your time today. Professor Mark Denniston, Weber State University professor, here with us on Live Mike. I'm Mary Richards. That's Jason Lee. We'll be right back on KSL News Radio. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.